Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Patrick Hunt about his new biography of the legendary General Hannibal, who fought against Rome during the Second Punic War. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you on the channel today. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, um, I am an archaeologist. Uh, my PhD is in uh, archaeology from the uh, Institute of Archaeology at University College of London, uh, connected to the University of London. And I have been uh, teaching at Stanford uh, for about 25 years, uh, early on in uh, mostly undergraduates and now mostly postgraduates. Uh, I directed an archaeology project at Stanford for, oh, gosh, uh, almost 20 years, uh, and it was mostly in the Alps, and a lot of that was tracking Hannibal. And what really uh, helped was when we received uh, National Geographic sponsorship. They uh, gave a grant to not only track Hannibal through the Alps, but also look at uh, some of the primary battle sites in Italy, uh, tracking him through Spain, going to Carthage. And uh, now I continue uh, with National Geographic as an expeditions expert, and I uh, often speak for them, sometimes in keynote uh, uh, situations about Hannibal. And uh, Hannibal uh, has been a major focus of my research uh, for much of my career. And uh, I spend time in the Alps every year. I, I love the Alps. Uh, they're majestic mountains. Uh, they're inspiring. And also, early on, uh, because I had studied uh, the Phoenicians and also the Celts, Hannibal was sort of a perfect blend, uh, a nexus of all those different things. Uh, Phoenician studies, Roman studies, uh, classical studies, uh, and, of course, um, uh, with uh, Celtic uh, uh, migrations and his influencing uh, uh, the Celts, trying to champion the Celts in a certain way, Hannibal was just the perfect place to uh, apply a lot of these different facets of research. And I find that uh, uh, Hannibal, uh, funny, on what really got me interested in Hannibal uh, for some time back was when I was working in the Alps, almost every pass I went to, the locals claimed Hannibal passed through there. <laughs> I knew that was true. <laughs> he couldn't have gone through every one of those passes. And that began to focus this research. And I find that uh, with Hannibal, uh, what an enigma. Uh, here's the guy who won almost every battle but lost the war. So uh, I want to dig deeper, and uh, Hannibal certainly warrants and deserves uh, that kind of interest and focus. He really is a fascinating figure as you 
uh, describing your book. And one of the most fascinating things about him is it gets to this old uh, you know, saw about how history is written by the winners. And as you explain, you, know, you do a lot of detective work in your book to try to discover Hannibal. But as you make it clear, so much about of what we know about him comes not from the sources of Carthage, which we don't have really, but from those of his enemies, uh, particularly the, uh, the two uh, great Roman historians who wrote about him and, and, and who provide so much of what we know about him. H- how did that uh, challenge, uh, how did you respond to that challenge in terms of understanding uh, Hannibal and, and, and getting to uh, who he was? Uh, an excellent question, Mark, because uh, part of the reason why he remains an enigma uh, is that the two great historians, uh, uh, first Polybius, who's writing in the second century BCE, and then Livy, who's writing around the time uh, of early empire, uh, Polybius is writing in Greek. Uh, he's a Greek uh, we're in the service, oddly enough, of the uh, Scipio family. And uh, Livy, of course, uh, is writing in Latin, and Livy writes very colorfully, uh, uh, but Livy does something that uh, uh, Polybius uh, probably wouldn't do, and that is that, that Livy, as a source, uh, never really gets, leaves his armchair. He writes from long distance, so sometimes his geography is suspect. Uh, you, you know, he's, he's suspect because uh, while while he cribs from Polybius, Polybius, on the other hand, uh, writes dryly. But you can tell, sort of, that uh, of the two, Polybius seems to ad- admire. Uh, Hannibal much more than Livy. Livy often derogates Hannibal and calls him cruel and perfidious. Uh, and on the other hand, Poly- Polybius, who had some time as an officer uh, in uh, 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 the uh, area of the Peloponnese as a Greek before uh, he was uh, basically uh, taken by the Romans, he's writing this story, and you notice that uh, if you want to make somebody uh, sort of look good, you describe how formidable their enemy was. And I kind of wonder, and many others have too, if uh, by describing Polybius, uh, by, by describing in Polybius' account so strongly uh, about Hannibal, he is ultimately going to make Scipio look good because uh, you know, if you if you build up your enemy into somebody really great, then obviously the person who beats him must be greater. And so, since Polybius is kind of in the employ of the Scipio family, you kind of see this behind the scenes. And I've always been fascinated uh, by something that you kind of allude to. Yeah, the the victors uh, write history, and since we don't really have anything by uh, Punic sources on Hannibal. We are ultimately dependent on the story of you know, that, that idea that to the victor go the spoils. So the Romans, oddly enough, even though in history, Scipio beats Hannibal at the very end at Zama in 202, I find it so curious that more people know about Hannibal, and Hannibal looms larger in the historic imagination than the guy who beat him, Scipio 
who's equally, if not even, maybe even more brilliant. But I, I just find that a real paradox. Why is Hannibal remembered more than his conqueror, Scipio? In that respect, Polybius did his work a little too well, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, it is fascinating because uh, Polybius uh, is the one who has, as I said, the military experience. And, you know, there's a, a book by Frontinus called Stratagemata, written at the end of the Roman Empire. Uh, and Frontinus describes all the kind of ploys and uh, tactics that were used in Roman history. And because he stands at the end of Roman history, he, he, he kind of can sum it all up. And I am not surprised that in his book on battle stratagems and ploys, Hannibal almost seems to get more space than anybody else. There are more stories and anecdotes about Hannibal's tactics than I think anybody. And this is a Roman writing. It, it, I was thinking that ties into one of the uh, points you make later in the book, which is how, in many respects, the reason why Rome ultimately wins is that... Hannibal becomes their teacher. And I was thinking about how it's the, the, the irony of Hannibal's life, that you have this young man who grows up uh, you know, in, in, in this, in this uh, Carthaginian family, and we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but it grows up in this Carthaginian family, and he, he has this, this mission, if you will, to defeat the Romans, and he ends up making them into an even more fearsome force because of the challenge he posed and how the Romans had ultimately learned from him in order to overcome that challenge. Well put, yes. And that, that's, that's a, a very plausible uh, historic possibility that uh, Hannibal schools the Romans. And, you know, definitely the Roman armies change after Hannibal. They they leave this idea of alternating commanders on a day of battle where you have two consuls and one is a military veteran and the other is a political appointee. Well, Hannibal basically thrashed the political appointees who were usually rash and impetuous as well as inexperienced. And the Romans finally decided, you know, maybe this isn't a good thing. <laughs> maybe we should only have sort of professional soldiers commanding our armies. Uh, and Hannibal really was able to get in the heads of his opponents. Uh, uh, going back to this idea about how the Romans changed, Polybius does make a point that Scipio learns very well, that uh, at the Battle of Zama, the final reversal is because Scipio adopts much of what Hannibal had as an advantage earlier on. Uh, while the Romans too often sent too many raw recruits into battle, Scipio now trains his veterans immensely, as well as even his recruits, and he gets what Hannibal had early on in all the other Carthaginian victories, Hannibal had a huge advantage in the mobile cavalry, especially the Numidians. And so at 202, this all is reversed because now Scipio has the cavalry advantage and has the Numidians on his side. Uh, these, are, these are some fascinating and intriguing things of how Scipio learns from Hannibal. And in fact, 
I think we can probably assume uh, that uh, Scipio admires Hannibal to a certain degree. Uh, after Zama, uh, when Hannibal's back in Carthage uh, as a soufet, as sort of a judge magistrate, Scipio could have demanded, uh, as many wanted, Hannibal to go in chains to Rome. But uh, quite a few people believe that Scipio held back and knew that if Carthage is going to be run effectively, uh, particularly to pay off its war debts, Hannibal should be one of the leaders left home. And you often wonder if if Scipio, uh, sort of toward the end there, protected Hannibal. And... In both of their lives, there's this irony how both Hannibal and Scipio were not fully appreciated by their countries. Uh, even on uh, Scipio's epitaph, he kind of says, you, you know, my bones are not going to rest with you, Rome. Uh, and, of course, uh, Hannibal is in exile for, uh, you know, decades. Uh, in fact, the majority of his life uh, is in exile, uh, whether voluntary or not. But uh, the, the Romans, you know, going back, as you suggested, this, this uh, huge uh, play for power in the Western Mediterranean, I think one of the other uh, difficult things to uh, catch on fully uh, was, was Hannibal able to see the future. Uh, remember when, uh, after the Battle of Matars, when Hasdrubal Barca, Hannibal's brother, is trapped by the Romans and dies. And if the story is true, uh, they deliver Hasdrubal's head to his brother Hannibal in his tent. Now, Hannibal is supposed to have said at that moment, he sees his brother's head rolling into the tent of this severed head of his brother. You know, you imagine the horror of one brother you know, seen uh, the death of his brother in such a gruesome way. But Hannibal is purportedly uh, to have said, there lies the future of Carthage. So did he understand what was going to happen? Uh, I think part of the philosophic uh, differences between Rome and Carthage should be brought out a bit. Uh, do you mind my expanding on that? Oh, please do, but I was wondering if you could do so in the context of the uh, of the events leading up to the, the Second Punic War. Sure. I, I feel like we should sure. visit that because it, it ties so well into what, into what we're talking about here because so much of what Hannibal's dealing with is a, it seems, uh, is a product of the experiences of his father, Hamilcar Barca, and, 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 you know, all the events leading up to the outbreak of the war. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. We understand much better why uh, in the first and second, third Punic Wars, uh, it's this contest over who's going to control uh, not only the Western Mediterranean, but all the land around it. And essentially, the first Punic War uh, is over Sicily, uh, because Sicily is only, at best, uh, Cape Lilibium. Uh, the southwestern tip of Sicily is only a hundred miles, if that, from Cape Bone uh, off Carthage. So you have this strait of water in the Mediterranean, which is a narrow strait. Uh, and then the other end of Sicily is about three miles uh, from basically uh, the, the tip of Sicily 
this triangular huge island, uh, the northeastern tip of Sicily around Messina is only three miles from uh, Reggio you know, Calabria, ancient Regium. And so the Romans, particularly in Campania, felt that, that Carthage then was too close for comfort and that Sicily could be a stepping stone to further Carthaginian expansion. So uh, the First Punic War, 264 uh, onward, uh, essentially, uh, it's about, you know, basically 241, uh, you have 20 plus years of a war over Sicily where the Romans get beat time and time again. They lose maybe a thousand ships, a hundred thousand men, and they only win in the last battle, partly aided by a storm. And Carthage had not expected uh, essentially to lose, and Hannibal's father, Hamilcar, is the most effective general. And the Romans really wanted that body of water. And so the, the water and Sicily uh, were what Carthage had kind of at the beginning of the war. Now, they didn't control all of Sicily, but they had a considerable uh, control over it and too close for comfort. So by the time the war is over, and surprisingly, uh, Rome wins, and one of the anecdotes is that they found a, a Carthaginian ship and the Romans weren't, they were landlubbers. They were not really big on sailing and navies, but they found a ship submerged, a Carthaginian boat, and when they brought it up to examine it, they actually took it apart and found there's a bit like paint by, paint by numbers. Every piece was numbered and labeled. So the boats of Carthage were mass produced. And once Rome discovered this, they copied the template, and they started building up uh, a much, much better navy. Well, uh, by 241, when the First Punic War is over, and Hamilcar's stuck in Sicily uh, without relief, and uh, he's angry because Carthage, the Gerusia, the elder, throw in the towel. He conceded when they didn't need to, that they, that they uh, admitted defeat when it was only one battle out of many. Uh, and then the Treaty of Lutatius in 241 uh, levies an indemnity, a uh, sort of a war penalty on Carthage. And Hamilcar's upset with all this. And, of course, uh, uh, the Second Punic War, which follows much later from, you know, basically 218 onward to 202. This is so often called Hannibal's War because Carthage can never quite own up to it. Uh, in fact, they didn't want war. And Hamilcar, who after puts down the mercenary revolts after 237, uh, goes to Spain and the elders, particularly the mercantile elders, uh, uh, the merchant elders of the council in Carthage are all too happy to see Hamilcar go uh, because he's too much of a threat to their own uh, kind of uh, democratic oligarchy. And it's, you know, a little bit of both. But uh, they don't like military heroes, the, the, the Council of Elders. So Hamilcar goes, and one of the reasons he goes to, to what would become Spain, uh, in this case, you know, Celtic Iberia, is he says he's going to help by developing the silver mines of uh, of New Carthage, uh, which becomes Cartagena. He's going to help pay back this war penalty with Spanish silver. 
And so young Hannibal wants to go with him. And we don't know if the story is true. Uh, Hannibal uh, really only described it later in, in life. But apparently, and if it's, a, if it's a life-changing moment, and if it's true, it makes a certain amount of sense. But Hannibal wants to go with his dad to Spain. Here his dad has been this absent uh, absentee father, you know, this great warrior, and Hannibal's maybe nine years old. So he is allowed to go with his father on one condition. He goes to uh, the altar, uh, we, we believe it's Baal's, and he puts his hand on a living sacrificial victim and swears eternal hatred to Rome. And that's apparently, if true, it satisfies Hamilcar. Whatever the case, he takes young Hannibal with him to Spain and trains him in warfare all the way through his adolescence. Uh, Now, intriguingly, when Hamilcar dies in Spain, uh, either by ambush or whatever, we don't know for sure, the Carthaginian army there in Spain, uh, at first, uh, Hannibal is not the successor of his father, but he's so charismatic and popular among the Carthaginian soldiers in Spain, and apparently was so well thought of now as a military commander that here's this guy, here's this kid, basically just out of adolescence, about 20 years old, who now takes over the armies in Spain, has this vow to his father, if it's true, to, to never uh, be a friend of Rome. Uh, and that's going to sort of set the stage for the Second Punic War. He seems to be, in that uh, telling, raised for this, 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 that he's being bred for this goal of, yes. of, of yes. doing Rome. Yes. In, in fact, I think the way I open up the book is with this sort of story. Uh, again, it's just a story, an act of, about how Hamilcar has three young lion cubs. And, you know, Hannibal's one of them, and they're kind of rolling on the floor, you know, fighting as boys would. And Hamilcar's very proud of his boys. And, yeah, is this Hannibal's destiny? Does Hamilcar, his father, see this? Uh, uh, Very, very possible. So he spends his uh, early years, a lot of his early years in Spain, and as you described, he's learning to uh, become a warrior. He's preparing for this goal that we've uh, been told he is, you know, that, that is sort of his life's mission, if you will. What brings about the Second Punic War? How, how does that, uh, how is that precipitated? Well, again, there's somewhat of a debate about this, and Polybius lays some of it to rest. Um, essentially, uh, uh, Hamilcar was also, before his death, very upset that after the Treaty of Lutatius, the Romans took over the island of Sardinia, which had nothing to do with the battle uh, conclusions, or and it, it was very obvious they were hemming Carthage in and taking over all of Carthage's outposts. And Sardinia had a very famous uh, Carthaginian or Punic uh, uh, town, Tharos. And by taking over Sardinia, it was very clear that the Romans were cutting off all the sea possibilities that Carthage had. Hamilcar was very unhappy about that. He raged against it. And whether you have the casus belli, the cause of war, clearly articulated, now the Romans are trying to constrain the Carthaginians in Spain. 
and there's a lot of tribal alliance between uh, Carthaginians and the Celts or the Celtiberians. Uh, but Rome now kind of draws this, this line in the sand, if you wish. It says, uh, you cannot cross the Ebro River. Of course, it was the Iber then, I-B-E-R, from which we get the name Iberia. You cannot cross the Ebro River, Rome says, uh, with, with arms, with an army. And so they basically try to keep any kind of territorial expansion of Carthage to a minimum. And then, uh, whatever the facts may be, the Romans, even though they're not really present in any big way in, 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 outside of Italy, they have an ally city, the Massilians, which later becomes Marseille, just east of the Rhone River mouth, and they have another allied city at Saguntum just off the north side of the Valencian coast in Spain. And it seems that whatever the pretext was, uh, maybe uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, Hannibal says, look, you Romans, you, uh, you basically mishandled some Carthaginian merchants outside Saguntum. And Hannibal goes up, uh, we don't know how much of that is true, uh, but he needs a pretext to go lay siege to Saguntum, and he does. Saguntum is this old, old fortress rising out of the Valencian plain, terrace upon terrace of ancient walls. And the Saguntines now are faced with Hannibal's siege. And this is a siege that takes month after month after month. It's a pretty impregnable fortress with deep wells and everything. And the gruesome way in which Saguntum is taken, uh, Rome doesn't seem to move fast toward helping its ally, and then the Saguntines are sort of starved out. Uh, and eventually, when Hannibal's army breaks through the walls, the top of the fortress of Saguntum, they find that the Saguntines had been so desperately starving, they were very likely uh, eating, uh, cannibalizing their own dead, including children. And that was so horrifying. That was considered such a travesty, such a taboo when Rome hears about it. Not only are they angry that their ally Saguntine uh, 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 fortress has been taken by Hannibal, but the way in which uh, the Sagutines are reduced to almost subhumans uh, is, is apparently a, a straw that uh, breaks the camel's back, as it were. And so uh, now uh, Hannibal gathers an army, and of course uh, the Romans send emissaries to Carthage to complain and to say this is wrong, and, and so on, and, and you, you must punish Hannibal. But nothing seems to happen. Instead, Hannibal gathers an army uh, uh, against Rome, and that's now, of course. He gets that army together, he's gone back to Cartagena, and he starts on his march uh, toward the border. He's going to cross the Iber River, and he does. And for sure, that's uh, throwing the gauntlet down. Uh, if if Saguntum weren't bad enough, and if the bad blood over Sardinia weren't weren't enough to make, on the one hand, the Carthaginians angry, but but sort of helpless, Hannibal takes matters into his own hands, and that's often 
even without full support of Carthage, this is now why this new war, the Second Punic War, is so often called Hannibal's War. And he is determined from the first to take the war directly to Rome. And the way you describe it, you describe the march, and, and, and I hope you get into that uh, in, 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 a, in just a moment. But I, one of the things that was uh, really interesting was not just reading about the march, but how from the start he is beginning to – he, he recognizes his limitations. And he recognizes that if he's going to really uh, defeat Rome, he's going to need the help of the Celts and how he's Absolutely. reaching out to them and, and playing upon yeah. that, that common grievance. Yes, and that's, a, that's very clever on his part. Um, one of the differences, if I can play this up, whether Hannibal ever fully saw the handwriting on the wall too far in advance is, is unlikely. Uh, but you, know, you look at the two powers. Carth, it's a sea power. It has these far-flung colonies, but they're emporia. It's a merchant-based empire. It's not an empire based on land or farming or territory. Rome is the exact opposite. Rome is an agronomic territorial-based power, and they have to constantly expand. That peninsula surrounded by water on three sides, or really two sides of a long, you know, narrow land body, uh, even with Sicily, uh, Rome is constrained, and as an as an agrarian power, they have to inexorably add more land, and they also have to control ultimately the sea, partly to constrain uh, uh, Carthage, but also so they can expand. So this huge philosophic difference between a sea-based mercantile power and a land-based agrarian power based on, you know, citizen militia farmers uh, and and land estates. When you think about it, Hannibal doesn't see that Rome has an endless supply of soldiers and timber. Carthage does not. Carthage has a much lower population overall. And you, that inequity is partly going to be a doom of Carthage. But also, uh, with that same difference in mind, you know, when the Romans get hold of the Mediterranean, when they control that western Mediterranean, uh, and it's very ironic, what they call it from then on is Mare Nostrum, our sea. It's no longer Carthage's, it's our sea. It is completely understandable based upon how Rome, a land-based power, also needs to expand, it has to control the sea. Because Rome can only expand northward into Europe by land, and the Alps are in the way. So they have to expand by sea. And when they change the name of the Mediterranean into Mare Nostrum, our sea, it kind of says it all. It's no longer Carthage's, it's ours. And it, uh, but that northern expansion, as you described, is when they're butting into the Celts. And yes, Hannibal understands. And Hannibal, I think, could really it seems could really relate to their grievances about that, and, and that seems to help him really uh, effectively play into that and, and recruit them as he is traversing through uh, what is now southern France uh, into the Alps and, and, and into northern Italy. Yes, yes. Now, he, uh, Hannibal understood, and uh, you want me to expand on his early relations with the Celts? Sure, please do. 
Okay, so Hannibal under, understands, Mark, that the, Car, the, the, the Carthaginians, who are far away, uh, they, they see what Rome is doing. In order to expand out of the peninsula of Italy, the Romans have to take down all the other peoples there, the Samnites, the Etruscans, etc. But on the north is, uh, is, is, is the Celtic Po River Valley, the Padana. And so little by little, the Romans set up colonies uh, take over Celtic land, take over Celtic farmlands and, and everything, and they establish places, new places, new new uh, colonies, if you wish, outposts, and, and then they become, as it were, uh, eventually full Roman uh, citizen-based uh, cities. But Cremona was one, Piacenza was one, and those were former Celtic territories. So the Celts know Rome is is not going to leave them alone either and 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 when they understand that Hannibal is going to march against Rome they send emissaries to him we're not sure who actually initiates the process whether they go to plead for his help on their behalf or Hannibal sees their plight and reaches out to them or both mutually how can we stop Rome both the Celts and Hannibal say and Hannibal gets uh, parley with some Celtic leaders. Basically, it's the Boii tribe, B-O-I-I, and later on, Bononia, Bologna, is kind of their, their land base. And they're right on the edge of the Padana, of the, of the Pover Valley, and they know uh, that Rome is going to expand into their land very soon. So while they kind of lead this um, alliance of Celts against Rome, and they, they say, look, you know, we can help you, you can help us. Uh, we'll provide guides uh, for you to cross uh, over into our territory. And uh, you can help us push back against the Romans. Now, intriguingly, and this is one of the points I make in the book, too, I've always kind of thought that Hannibal's name is, is a clue uh, to a certain degree uh, of part of that destiny of him crossing the Alps because Hannibal means the grace or favor of Baal and that's the personal God it's in, it's, it's in his name that's called a theophoric name when you carry a God in your name that becomes your personal God now you could change your name and put a different God in your name but Baal is of all gods a storm and mountain God now, of course, Hannibal can't uh, cross into Italy by sea because the Carthaginian sea powers are diminished. Rome is blockading those waters. He can't cross over easily along the coast, which is a steep coast just below the Alp Maritime. He can't do that because the Romans have it blocked with armies. So he's forced to go north and over and around. And the Romans seem to think that the Alps are their fence. The Alps protect them. And, you know, the Romans are landlubbers. They're not mountaineers. They're flatlanders. But if Hannibal's god is a god of mountains and storms, could that have possibly predisposed him to going over that formidable, uh, intimidating mountain range? In a way, it may le have lessened the, the danger in his mind. But the Celts also tell him, we'll help you with guides over these mountains because we've passed through them. We've gone over them. 
uh, Celtic armies had gone over the Alps on on several occasions uh, in previous years, like the Insubris tribes and others. So uh, Hannibal really reach, researches, he really studies, he, he listens very carefully to the Celtic envoys, and he decides uh, at that point, probably, that uh, the Alps are his best way in, into Italy by the back door, and the Celts are going to help him. Even with that help, the, the journey you describe is a very harrowing and costly one. You describe thousands oh, yeah. of, of soldiers uh, dying uh, along the way. And, and that gets to the other reason why he needs, the Celts. He needs those reinforcements, which are exactly. pretty clearly not going exactly. to be coming from Carthage itself. Nope, nope, exactly. To bolster his very much diminished forces, some say, and I think Polybius plays this out fairly carefully, Hannibal could have lost up to 40% of his army going over the Alps. And that's bad news. And whether it's because of Celtic ambushes, whether the difficulty of the journey, whether, um, you know, the hypothermia, hypoxia. And I at one point wrote a little bit of an article on this with a, a medical student about how paleopathology might also play into the the, uh, the loss of, of soldiers going over the Alps. You know, if, if you get somebody up ahead of the top of the column who's sick, like with cholera, you can wipe out you know, a whole army in a, in a half a day because the people up at the top are, are, are uh, polluting the water supply and then people drink that polluted water. And literally six hours can pretty much put you at death's door. And if your immune system is already compromised, if you're weakened, if you're cold, uh, if it's hard to breathe and you're up at high altitude, you know, all kinds of things that can weaken an army uh, can really uh, wreak even further destruction with uh, a pathogen, whether it's cholera or, or something else, typhus. So uh, we don't know. There's no evidence that this happened, but a disease stalks an army, and sometimes disease kills off more than the actual battle. That's kind of a given in warfare in antiquity, even up into modern times. So whatever the case, Hannibal loses possibly, and, and Polybius says uh, almost half of his army coming over the Alps. And there's a point in Polybius, uh, kind of toward the end of 53, uh, book three, uh, chapter 53, 54, and five, and so on, where Hannibal, is, his men are described by Polybius as being so reduced to the state of despair and exhaustion that they're, they're more beasts, they're more animals than men. Uh, they're just decimated. And yes, exactly, Mark, as you say, Hannibal knows he has to reinforce his depleted army with Celts, or it's never going to happen. So he does this. He crosses the Alps in this, in this epic event. He, he reaches uh, northern Italy, and the Romans then proceed to marshal their forces against him. And you have this succession of three major battles that you describe that really are key to this reputation that Hannibal has for the rest of history about him, his generalship. And I was wondering if you could explain uh, the battles and, and how he wins them and, and, and how also 
as as you you know make clear, the Romans lose them as well. Yes, yes. Well, you know, it's funny. The Romans sent a quick force around uh, into Gaul to try to find Hannibal. And, of course, this is part of the Scipio family again. And he's gone. They find his campfires, you know, kind of with maybe embers, but he's gone. And they just say, oh, where'd he go? He went north. He'll come back later. But he, he went north and came over the back door. So the Romans kind of let, said, oh, well, okay, we'll come back and wait for him. And then he pops out in Italy uh, in November. Uh, and now what he does, of course, uh, there's a skirmish at the Ticinus River, the Ticino River today, where Hannibal now employs something that one of the sort of major uh, emphases of my book is how Hannibal always bolsters his outnumbered forces. He he maximizes and expands his arsenal by using the environment. So he uses nature and the topography, the terrain and natural circumstances as part of his army. So the first one at Trebia, uh, and this is uh, very, very late in, in 218, probably around the winter solstice. And he knows that, uh, that Claudius Scipio uh, Sr., uh, this is the father of the eventual Scipio Africanus. Uh, uh, young Scipio is apparently with his father at this Ticino skirmish. And some say that he even saved his father's life. Uh, but what what Hannibal did was he sort of hemmed in the Romans at the junction of the Ticinus River and the Po River. And they couldn't get easily away. They have water on two sides and Hannibal kind of corners them. And it's a skirmish that goes back and forth. But finally the Romans get across the bridge with their wounded commander and they hole up in Piacenza, which is, to, you know, it's Placentia, but now it's Piacenza. And they've got a bit of a fort there. But the other general who has, who's been sent to augment the Roman army is this guy Sempronius. And Sempronius is a political appointee, and he's rash, he's impetuous, he's vainglorious, uh, he's arrogant, and he thinks that he can take down Hannibal. Well, Hannibal has really good military intelligence, and this is another thing that I want to emphasize and I bring out. Hannibal, because he has access to Spanish silver, and he knows how fickle the Celts are, because they're Celtic allies for the Romans too. Hannibal always has enough money to pay for military intelligence, at least until Rome takes Cart Cartagena with Scipio. And th then that really changes uh, Hannibal's tactics. But if Hannibal knows his enemy very, very well, he has spies in the camp, whether they're, whether they're Celtic muleteers or, or whatever, Hannibal always knows what's going on and he finds out all about his enemy. And Scipio kept saying, the wounded Scipio who's recuperating says, don't fight Hannibal. The, the older Scipio kind of has a good grasp of how cagey Hannibal is. But the other general, the consul, the political appointee, Sempronius, he's a hothead. And so Hannibal finds out uh, how to exploit uh, the vulnerability of Sempronius. And so 
one morning, apparently, uh, about the winter solstice, it's a really, really cold day. It was a cold night, freezing cold. And Hannibal uh, takes a body of his men. He gets about 2,000 of them uh, under the command of his brother Mago, his younger brother. And he basically sets them up in a kind of a canyon ravine on the Trebia River. And then he sends his Numidians, and his army is well-rested and well-fed, but he sends his Numidian cavalry, cavalry across the Trebia River, which is freezing cold. You know, it's a day of sleet and snow and ice, and there's probably a lot of ice even floating on this Trebia River. And Hannibal goes, he sends his Numidian cavalry across to the Roman camp to Sempronius's sentries and taunts them and says all kinds of things. Uh, about Sempronius and Sempronius can't take it and he gets he rouses his army he sends them out before even giving them breakfast he sends them out to chase the Numidian cavalry back across the river now the Numidians knew where to cross where it was shallowest but apparently you know the horses can withstand the cold water better than the, the officers or the men on them uh, and the horses charge back across the river, back towards the Carthaginian side, uh, back to the west, because the Romans are camped on the east. And now it's a very, very clever move of Hannibal. He gets the Roman army watching those Midian cavalry riding along the bank. He gets them to cross where the entire Roman army, which is mostly infantry, yeah, they have cavalry too, but mostly infantry, they come charging across the water. And this is freezing cold water. And you can imagine it's winter, the, 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 the iciness of the environment. They climb out of that river, and what happens to them? I can imagine their clothes almost freezing on them. And they're really immobilized. But that doesn't stop Sempronius, who, by the way, is on a horse. His men are cold and lethargic, and he's pushing them from behind. And they go towards the place that Hannibal has pre-chosen the battle, which looks flat and kind of treeless. But the Romans don't even see, hidden in that wooded ravine on the side, is an ambush waiting to come at them from the backside. So Hannibal's already taken the 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 huge force of Romans and paralyze them with cold. And now he comes in behind uh, with the ambush. Only It only needed 2,000 people. And that day at Trebia, probably 15,000 Romans die. And Sempronius escapes with some of his officers. They charge right through, they get through. But the elephants of Hannibal, the ones who've survived that winter crossing of the Alps, we don't know how many, but probably at least 30, they trample any of the Romans trying to get back to the river and escape. It's a terrible, terrible day for Rome. And Sempronius blames it on the weather. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he, he gets back to Rome eventually and says, look, you know, the weather did us in. And, and Rome kind of believes him. Uh, but that's that's the first major battle that Hannibal wins. And, of course, Hannibal takes lots of, uh, of, of captives. And one of the things Hannibal does again and again, he wants to show the Celts, look, the Romans are beatable, and they're against you, so you should be on my side. I'm on your side. And with that first battle at Trebia, 
Oh, and of course, even before when he when he beat the Taurini after he came out of the Alps, Hannibal wants to say to the Celts, "Look, you don't want to be against me. You want to be with me." And so Trebia and the outcome of Trebia, a solid Carthaginian victory for Hannibal, brings other Celts to his side, the ones who are kind of on the fence. And Hannibal is going to promise them not only revenge against the Romans, that they can get their land back, but now he offers another tantalizing, you know, a carrot to the donkey. He offers them Roman loot. And, of course, the Celts, uh, their whole organized way of fighting is, is uh, a bit dodgy. They're, they're more about individual championship than they are about, you know, ordered phalanx-type fighting. But there's no one's going to doubt the Celts' bravery. And now his army is very much augmented by Celts. And he stays the winter uh, of, of 218 in Bologna, Bononia, and then he crosses over. Now, the Romans thought they could cut him off. They thought he would come all the way along the Po River to the mouth of the Po uh, around Rimini, Ariminum, around the Adriatic, and then they thought he'd come down along the coast on the east side, but he doesn't. He crosses the Apennines. And and here's another point that I kind of wonder about. I'd like to maybe make a case here. But Hannibal knows when he crosses down over the Apennines, he's in another territory that's basically hostile to Rome, and that's Etruria, the land of the Etruscans. And maybe Hannibal kind of wants to get the Etruscans, uh, uh, you know, uh, to rise up against the Romans, too. But nobody expects Hannibal to go up the Arno River and cross through the marshes, which he does. That's kind of considered impassable, the Arno marshes, but Hannibal does it. And, of course, he loses some men in the process. And that's even where he apparently loses his eye to some kind of possible bacterial conjunctivitis. Uh, But the winter probably kills off almost all the elephants. And there's really only one, his kind of favorite, Suros, left. And uh, whether he rides it or not, as anecdote and legend say, we don't know. But now Hannibal's army comes down into uh, Etruria, into the kind of breadbasket of Umbria, uh, Tuscany and Umbria, through Etruscan lands, where the Romans don't have any armies fielded. But he eventually makes his way past Aretium, that's modern Arezzo, and now... uh, there's a new Roman army under a new uh, political appointee consul, and that's Flaminius. And Hannibal takes advantage of Flaminius in the same way he took advantage of Sempronius. He sort of slashes and burns his way through uh, uh, the area, the territory, and uh, he, he makes it very clear where he's going with a, with a column of smoke and burning behind him, just uh, plunders every Roman uh, outpost, every Roman farm, uh, takes everything he can, and he's sort of taunting Flaminius all along the way. And uh, he gets by Flaminius' army, and somewhere around Cortona, just above Lake Trasimen, Hannibal stays in sight of Flaminius and his army who are following him, and then he suddenly 
turns east into a very, very narrow valley right at the top of Lake Trazimen. So it's blocked by water on one side and hills on the other sides. And he does this just at dusk. So he wants the Roman sentries and scouts and Flemish to know he's tucked up in this valley. And what's interesting about this battle is that the Romans, in, in a sense, have an excuse for the first one. If they buy into the idea, oh, it was the weather. And as yeah. you explain, in this battle, he is definitely outnumbered by the Romans. So, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and so very outnumbered. The, the strategy becomes very obvious, which is that if you funnel them, you lose the advantage of those numbers. That's right. So what he does, Hannibal sets up in the night all of his different portions of his army. He sets them up in the hills all around above Lake Trazimen, where if you want to, if you want to follow Hannibal into this valley, uh, you better be able to see where he is. And Hannibal stations a portion of his army, obviously at the end of that valley. But what, what the Romans don't know, the next morning when they, when they start marching in that valley, they don't know that the army that they can see at the end of the valley is not the full army. The rest of that army is above them in the hills all along the way. And what Hannibal also now uses to his advantage, you know, it's summertime. Apparently, just like Trebia was the winter solstice, now it's about the summer solstice. And you have hot land mass with a cold body of water, deep Lake Trazimen. And what, what's created there? I can tell you, fog. And Hannibal uses the fog to his advantage. The Romans can't see all of his forces tucked up in those hills in this, this fog. They can see, the Romans can only see Hannibal's uh, force at the end of the valley. And, they, and now here's where Hannibal again brilliantly uses nature to his advantage. The, the Romans are surrounded on one side by the, the hills the fog they can't see clearly and they've got the lake on their southern side the the hills on their northern side and hannibal had a pretty good uh communication signaling corps and you know you have to think about this hannibal's army is multicultural diverse speaking many languages but they must have known exactly how to blow the the war trumpets with the right notes to say here's what we do next it was really well planned so the the trumpet blast must have come out and suddenly the romans are so deep into this valley that they're not only facing Romans in front of them, their entire northern flank is beset by Hannibal's army, who now, all together, they start pushing the Roman army into the lake. And again, uh, it's, a, it's a huge, huge defeat for Rome. And we don't know if it's true, uh, but Flaminius apparently went down. Uh, uh, there's, there are just anecdotes to support this, that uh, the general Flaminius was killed, uh, maybe even decapitated by a Celt. But here's this, again, impulsive uh, Roman general who's a political appointee who fails to do his reconnoitering, who fails to do his homework, who fails to see that he's walked right into Hannibal's trap. So like Trebia, another 15,000 Romans die, butchered, uh, 
and the, the lake shore is filled with blood, the rivers around, in fact, it's really interesting, Mark, even locally today, the people of that part uh, of Tuscany and the Tuscany-Umbrian borders, there's a river today that flows down into the lake, and it must have been grizzly because the river's name is Sanguinetto. Even today, Blood River. Wow. Some say from that battle. And uh, Servius, the other Roman general who was stationed at Aramini, at, at Riminum, at, you know, Araminum, Rimini, he comes down and uh, he's got, you know, several thousands of, uh, of soldiers with him. Uh, but Hannibal sends one of his generals over and they capture all those Romans too. So now there are thousands upon thousands of Roman captives and Roman dead. And this one, you can't talk around. You can't find an excuse. This isn't because of weather. This is because of Hannibal. And this is when... And Rome... And this is when they, they begin to reconsider their strategy. And this is when uh, Quintius Fabius Maximus enters the stage. That's right. That's right. Well, it's intriguing. Uh, of course, Rome is filled with dooms and omens. But Livy says something intriguing. You know, I, I, I don't always trust Livy. I love to read Livy because he's so uh, colorful. But Livy says that the failure of Sempronius wasn't just because he was impetuous. He failed to follow all the Roman rituals of religion. He failed to get omens. He failed to do this. He, he was not a good uh, Roman religious man who obeyed the Senate and who obeyed Roman religion. So Livy kind of Livy, who's always talking about omens, uh, says that 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 the, that the omens were against uh, Flaminius, but he he pers- he pers- he pursued nonetheless, even on days when the omens were bad, like when the Roman legionary standards were stuck in the clay of Arezzo, that famous red clay, and that was a bad omen, and and. Uh, Flaminius just kind of ignores the omens, which to Livy is a bad thing to do. So now Rome uh, is is sort of seen in fear, this doom that can come upon them. And as you mentioned, Mark, they appoint a temporary old military officer, uh, Fabius Maxus uh, Veracosus. Uh, uh, they they make him temporary dictator because they realize, hey, we've lost two armies to this Hannibal character now. Maybe maybe Sempronius was wrong. Maybe it wasn't the weather. Maybe it really was Hannibal. So they set up a dictator, uh, Fabius Maximus, who now gets a title, Cumtator, the delayer, because he decides it's best not to engage Hannibal in battle. But just kind of nip at his heels, follow him around, uh, but don't engage. And uh, some of his officers, like uh, Manuchius, are are against that. Manuchius wants to, you know, tackle Hannibal head on, and Fabius Max says, "No, no, don't do it." Uh, and this is not to Hannibal's advantage, because a war of attrition will not be good for Hannibal. Uh, he's in hostile territory. He's having to take his food, uh, basically by uh, by force, unless he has allies. Whereas Fabius Maximus and the Romans, they're 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 in their own land, 
and they can supply themselves. And of course, the Romans, you know, have a new army of recruits at the ready. Uh, so Fabius Maximus basically chases Hannibal around uh, for a, a year uh, or so. And now Hannibal, uh, he's based mostly in um, Apulia, that's today's Puglia. He's uh, kind of on the Adriatic side. And then Hannibal does something, that, one of my favorite uh, battle stories, although it's more of a, a maneuver than a battle, happens in Campania. Hannibal goes down, he goes west from Apulia, crosses the Apennines, and sets up camp uh, uh, Mount Tifada on the edge of Campania. Uh, well, f first he's in Campania, and he's basically just stripping the land of its rich, rich farming harvest. This is the place that Pliny, of course, later calls Campania Felix, happy Campania, because it's such rich farmland. So at will, Hannibal is taking all the produce of farm after farm to supply his army, and he's taking cattle upon cattle. He's taking all the Romans' cattle in Campania, taking a lot of the food, and he's, you know, he's got this kind of fat and bloated supply line with him. But now Fabius Maximus comes and thinks he can shut off Hannibal, and he kind of, with the one main exit pass out of Campania, Fabius Maximus puts his sentries there and kind of blocks Hannibal. And it's a pretty steep area, and Hannibal now sees what Fabius Maximus has done, and this is the, the Volturnus episode. Uh, V-O-L-T-U-R-N-U-S. And what Hannibal does is so brilliant. This, I think, more than almost any other tactic, shows his adaptability, shows why he was so good at tactics. Because the Romans are sitting up at the, the top of this pass out of Campania to block him from going back east into Apulia. And Hannibal sets his men down and he says, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to bed early and then in the middle of the night we're going to get up and, and here's what we do. So Hannibal took several thousand cattle and just after maybe mid between midnight and the you know early morning, Hannibal's men rise up from slumber and Hannibal knows that Fabius Maximus, the delayer, is cautious. And he won't really make any move in the night because he'll wait until morning. Thinking he's got Hannibal boxed in, you know, he's going to wait for daylight. He's going to wait and see, wait and see. That's Fabius Maximus's policy. So Hannibal exploits that by tying wood, uh, a lot of uh, firewood. He ties them between the horns of the cattle. And then in pitch black, not not a bit of light, Hannibal has his men light those firebrands between the cattle's horns and drives them with goads up out of that valley, not over the main pass road, but slightly to the west. And the Roman sentries, they don't see an army, but they think they see an army with all these moving firebrands in the middle of the night. And whether the cattle were lowing in fear, they're probably pretty scared. They're running pell-mell up the mountain with torches. And all the Romans see is what they think is an escaping Carthaginian army. So 
so whether they roused Fabius or not, the Roman army that's that's guarding that pass instead runs along the ridge west to track this army that they think is Hannibal. And now with the pass open, Hannibal brings his army over it and escapes. And all those Romans, of course he has some real wicked, you know, uh, sort of anybody who's Roman foolish enough to uh, run after the cattle is probably going to also encounter kind of, I won't say ninja-like fighters, but, you know, in the dark, you've got these Carthaginians waiting, and they take down as many Romans as they can before they, too, escape. Now, maybe those cattle never reunited with Hannibal, but the fake army of cattle with firebrands completely fools the Romans and Fabius. That adaptability is one of Hannibal's most brilliant tactics, I think, because it shows that he can think on the spur of the moment and change his tactics. He doesn't force his battles into the same kind of set battle plan. He adapts, he adapts, he adapts. And he shows his men how to adapt, too. Uh, I, I just am really impressed by that adaptability. Uh, and... Uh, you know, uh, Mark, should I should I go on here a little bit? Uh, I actually had a, a question for you about. Could, I want to go back to Libby for just a moment because do you think that when Libby was talking about the uh, the the uh, failure to follow the the proper uh, rituals and and do everything that that perhaps there he was uh, either uh, consciously or maybe even just happened to coincidentally be referring to maybe how many Romans were excusing. Lake Trasman, and because Lake Trasman, as 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 dramatic as it was, wasn't uh, Carth wasn't Hannibal's greatest victory. That's Canai. Oh no, no, that's to come. Can I? Yeah. Well, it, it's it's sort of like in 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 the minds of some of us that that um, the Romans are trying to rationalize, and Livy's giving them a rationale for loss that it's it, it's it's improper religious observance. Uh, instead of giving Hannibal the credit, which Livy's going to rarely do, he he instead of praising Hannibal, he just says uh, Sempronius wasn't a real Roman; he was a new man. Uh, sorry, uh, Flaminius, Sempronius too, but Flaminius now at Trazi Men wasn't uh, a real, and he was sort of a a new man, and he was not properly trained, uh, and he wasn't a real uh, patrician, as it were, like Livy. So uh, Livy lays the responsibility, the blame, along several levels, including uh, Flaminius's lack of pedigree, Fl- Flaminius's lack of religious observance, and and so on, rather than credit Hannibal. Do you think that he... So yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a, I think there's a if not conscious, subconscious ploy here to try to make it a bit of a wash. So it's not that Hannibal won, it's that Flaminius lost. And many Romans might have had that same rationalization because ultimately Fabius is, in effect, overridden, and the Romans decide to confront Hannibal again. It's understandable, too, because he's destroying those those farms that he's uh, stripping of their produce and the, and the cattle he's hurting. Yeah. That's, you know, some of that is, is, is that of patricians, and they probably are not going to comfortably sit on their hands while Hannibal does this. 
No, no. You're so right, Mark. And the other funny thing is, is that Hannibal is not only capturing a lot of Roman weapons, and he's he's striking fear into the very heart of Rome. After Trasimene, Rome is really worried. But after Volturnus, when Hannibal gets away from Fabius, uh, Rome is disgusted. One of the things that uh, Hannibal does time and again, any time Hannibal captures uh, Romans, whether they're allies or whether they're direct Romans, he often frees the allies. If they're not Romans, he frees them and says, go home. If they're Celts, he says, go home and tell your people that we're not against you. We're with you. But the Romans, he makes captives and he makes Rome ransom them, pay money to get them back. Hannibal played another little trick on Fabius. Uh, Fabius's family had a farm plot in Campania, and uh, Hannibal took every farm plot of this rich farmland except Fabius's, and then he kind of implied back to the Romans that Fabius had bribed him to leave it alone <laughs> to make <laughs> Fabius look bad. Uh, which, of course, was not the case. And, uh, you know, when you move now a year later, Rome now levies eight new legions, and many of them raw recruits, no training whatsoever, but puts these uh, this army, these eight new legions, and they, they march down uh, from Rome uh, all the way down to uh, Lower Puglia, Apulia, where Hannibal has now in uh, summer, and you know, Hannibal's constantly got to supply his armies with food. So Hannibal went and took the grain depot at Canusium, which is not too far, you know, some 20 miles inland from the Adriatic, near, you know, between, uh, near Bari and Barletta on the Italian Adriatic eastern coast. And the Romans have been putting together with levies, conscripts, recruit after recruit after recruit, and put them again under this two consular control. So the command is alternating days between now this old military veteran of a great family, the Emilii, uh, and this Emilius Paulus, and then there's another hothead kind of political appointee who was uh, a demagogue, who was uh, not really someone that the patricians had uh, much respect for, and that was Terentius Varro. And Varro is now, on every other day, the commander vis-a-vis the veteran Emilius Paulus. And it's 216 BCE, so full two years now Hannibal's been wiping out Romans, King farmland, and, you know, uh, giving loot as much as possible to supply his Celts. But now the Celts are kind of far from home. They're way down in, in, in deep in Italy. And Hannibal takes this grain depot at Canusium, obviously to partly supply his, his own armies, but it's, it's, a, it's a taunt to the Romans. So the Romans are marching all the way, possibly, it's hard to say exactly the route they take, it might have been the old Appian Way, uh, and you have 80,000 Romans assembled. Hannibal knows 
that they don't really train very much along the way. And here's where a general like Hannibal takes full advantage of what we call psyops, you know, psychological operations. He, as much as possible, always chooses the battle site, always chooses in advance the place where he draws up the campaign to fight. And in this place, the Alphidus River, today called the Ofanto, uh, it, it uh, runs east, kind of meanders into the Adriatic Sea. But at this point, is a pretty narrow valley circumscribed by hills. And Hannibal sets up camp, and he's going to move camp back and forth. One of the anecdotes that's said about him is that uh, when the Romans came, Hannibal had already commandeered the, the most of the water supply, the fresh water. And the Romans arrive, and they're thirsty. And we're told, whether true or not, that Hannibal took uh, dead animals and dropped them in the river, you know, uh, decomposing animals to foul the water supply of the Romans. Whether it's true or not, it wouldn't surprise us about Hannibal. But then, uh, we don't know for sure about the day of alternating battle, but Hannibal sets up another trap. And it could go against him if he's not careful, because he's outnumbered considerably. Maybe not quite two to one, but not too far off. And here are these 80,000 Roman soldiers, many of them raw recruits. And Hannibal uh, sets up at the end of a very narrow valley. He's going to compress the Romans. The Romans cannot outflank him. If they could, he would be done for. If the Romans went east and west around him and surrounded him, that would be bad news. But they can't because he's got them hemmed in by the Alphidus River on the west side and the hills on the southeast side. So they're forced into this long, long, narrow column. And then Hannibal uh, uses his Balearic Islanders who are sling, they're slingers. They have rocks. And apparently they're really accurate because early on, on the day of battle, we are not sure if it was actually Terentius's Varro day to command or not. But Emilius Paulus had said, restrain yourself. Do not fight. Do not fight Hannibal today. Now, it's interesting. Fabius Maximus had written to Emilius Paulus early on in this last campaign, just pre-Cani, saying, look, your, your enemy is as much Terentius Varro, this hothead <laughs> demagogue, as it is Hannibal. You know, hold him in check. Well, Emilius Pallas was unable to do so. And Hannibal creates, you know, the day of battle happens, and Hannibal's got the Numidian cavalry uh, on, uh, on the west, on the left side, and he's got his other cavalry on the right side. The Romans have some small cavalry. Terentius Varro uh, is on the north. So <clears throat> the Romans are on the north, and the Carthaginians are on the south facing. And here's another tale that seems to be true about how Hannibal controlled the environment. At that time of year, there's a wind uh, that comes and in it. I've seen it. I've been in it in these sandstorms coming off the Mediterranean. And it's really nasty. 
and the sand blows grit and it obscures visibility. Plus, it's a real irritant. You know, if you can't cover your eyes with shades or whatever. And so Hannibal's facing north and he has the Romans facing the sandstorm with the grit blowing into their eyes. Another irritant. And that was deliberate. Uh, and whether it's called a Scirocco or Lebecchio, there are different names for this wind bearing with a lot of sandstorm grit in it. But it's just another way Hannibal controlled the environment. Plus, he chose the battle site, this narrow place with the river on one side and the hills on the other. So Hannibal, the skirmishers start, the battle kind of begins, and there's a bulge kind of like a meniscus bulge toward the front where Hannibal has his men. And by the way, Hannibal um, uh, has Celtiberians and his own uh, North African uh, forces. Uh, a lot of them, of course, are mercenaries. Carthage always relies on a lot of mercenaries. And a lot of them were arrayed in captured Roman gear. So they even look like Romans on both sides. And this bulge that Hannibal has, whether we, we think it may be August 1st of 216, Hannibal has this bulge at first, then he has it pulled back, but not after the Balearic Slingers have inflicted one major casualty. Apparently, the Balearic Slingers knew exactly where Emilius Paulus was, the good military veteran general, and apparently they gave him such a head wound, it took him out of the battle. Now, he's not dead, but he's bleeding profusely and weakened, and he can't take full command. And then Hannibal does this most amazing thing. He draws his center back. He pulls back, leaving the, the, his two armies on the sides, particularly the Spanish and Africans. And as they, whether it's a, a real retreat or a feigned retreat, it's probably a feigned retreat. Hannibal pulls back and, and draws the Romans down into this, where suddenly, whether they think they're their own Romans or allies or not, early on, the, the Carthaginian cavalry chases completely off the battle the Roman cavalry. They just force them, chase them along the river, and they... They, they, they basically abandoned the battlefield. But then, and that's on the, the west side of the battle, and then on the east side of the battle, where Terentius Varro with his cavalry officers are, now the other Carthaginian cavalry chase them, and Varro does something so treasonous. He totally abandons the battlefield. He leaves the battlefield. With Aemilius Paulus wounded, and with uh, Varro completely uh, trying to escape whatsoever, uh, trying to flee the, the cavalry chasing him, Varro leaves this army essentially leaderless. Now, there were many, many Roman tribunes. There were many Roman officers still on, on the field. But now Hannibal draws all those recruits, all that Roman army into this tight valley, and now he begins to squeeze the vice. He compresses it on both sides. So the Romans are doing okay in the center and the front. And who has Hannibal placed at the center and front? Kind of like cannon fodder, the Celts. So the Celts are taking the brunt of casualties in Hannibal's army. And 
at some prearranged signal, it's hard to say exactly how this goes, but Hannibal certainly was prepared for it. The Romans are drawn down into this gauntlet with Africans and Spanish Celts on both sides. And at a prearranged signal, some trumpet peal or whatever, suddenly those soldiers who may have looked like Roman soldiers turn to their left and right and start hacking through the Roman line. And the Romans are compressed so tightly, eight legions. Now, not all the Romans are fighting. Some 10,000 were back to guard the camp. So maybe you have 70,000 soldiers on the field. And now uh, <clears throat> Terentius Varro has fled the scene. And apparently uh, some other officers had gotten away. And among them was very likely young Scipio. We don't know how or what the circumstances were. But what the, what the Carthaginians, what Hannibal does now, he squeezes that vice. And he forces, he compresses the Roman army into such a tight, tight band that in the middle, they can scarcely raise their arms. They're, they're pressed so tightly against each other. The only real fighting, here they have a numerical advantage, but their, their center is doing nothing. The fight is along the edges of that sort of square, that, that compressed mass. So the only Romans who are actually able to raise their, their weapons are the ones on three sides of that box. And then Hannibal's cavalries come back and close off the backside. Now this is often called the famous double envelopment of Hannibal. It's kind of more like a quadruple envelopment now. And it's very likely that the Celtiberians also had these deadly uh, sabers uh, called falcata. Uh, they're weighted towards the front. They're like pikes, swords, sabers at the same time. They have deadly points. The weight of gravity, when, when you pull down on one, and I've actually held some manufactured ones, uh, modern ones, they're, they're so deadly, they can slice through bone really quickly. So you've got this deadly hacking going on on two sides, the east and west side of the box. The Roman... Uh, uh, Romans were pressed on the north side by the two rejoined Carthaginian cavalries, including the Numidians. And in the very front, ha you know, Hannibal's uh, maybe taking some casualties at the front, middle. But it's so deadly that on that day of battle at Cannae, it may, maybe in one afternoon, military historians suggest that a minimum of 55,000 Romans died. And here's where Hannibal used fear. The surprise. These are mostly young recruits. And it's like their bowels dissolve in fear. And they're paralyzed too. They're also immobilized by being pressed together. 55,000 Romans minimum die that day. Now Hannibal... Uh, may have lost up into, we don't know how many, at least 6,000, maybe 10,000 or more. But the overwhelming victory here at Cannae means that one out of every five Roman males of military age is dead. One out of five. And the cream of the crop, something like... Uh, the major, all the major generals are either dead 
or incapacitated or maimed or dying. 29 tribunes, many Roman senators who were patricians and military officers of experience. So the hit on Rome is enormous. The day, at the, at that afternoon, the day after battle, uh, you have Hannibal and his men picking through the corpses of dying men and dead men. And his men collected 200 rings of Roman knights, the equities, gold rings. That's what they were allowed to wear, 200 Roman knights. So this is a huge portion of Romans of Rome's military might is dead on that battlefield. You raise this fascinating point, though, in the book, which is that you have, this is really the moment at which Hannibal is at his apex. And yes. yet he does not do what, in retrospect, he it, it, it seems like he should have done, which is march on Rome. What, yes. What, 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 why does he not follow through with this tremendous victory by, by, by forcing yeah. a conclusion of the war? Well, that, this is this is an enormous enigma. Again, um, just what Hannibal hoped to gain in this battle was to turn South Italy and all the allies who were kind of on the fence toward him, so that it would really also further uh, incapacitate Rome. And and some of that did happen, in fact. But the day after that battle, or the the end, the eve of that battle, we're told that Maharbal, the Numidian cavalry commander, said to Hannibal, let's march on Rome. We can be there in five days. We can take Rome. Because here's Rome's, here's Rome's military machine at our feet, vanquished. Let's go take Rome. And Hannibal demurs. And Maharbal, if this quote is true, has this famous dictum, which is, Hannibal, you know how to win a tremendous military victory, but not how to use it to your advantage. And later on, practically, you know, you know ten, almost 10 years later, Hannibal does indeed march on Rome. But that's to draw the Romans away from the siege of Capua. And we're told that Hannibal stands literally below the walls of Rome, probably on the east side. And I think Hannibal knew in his heart that he could not actually take the city of Rome. The siege of Saguntum lasted six months and for the uh, besiegers was difficult. Hannibal did not have siege machines and Rome is surrounded 50 miles around with walls. Plus, it has water supply. Now, they may not be drinking much of the Tiber River. It's probably pretty polluted. But Rome has interior water supply, wells, cisterns. And I think Hannibal's, you know, he's he's not within weapons reach below the walls of Rome. But he's looking up at Rome, looking, surveying the walls. And I think he knew all the way back at Cannae, almost 10 years before, that that. To have a walled city 50 miles around, how could you possibly surround it? What kind of armies would you need to surround Rome and to besiege it? If Saguntum, a very small hill fortress, took six months, was Rome even conquerable? And I think he knew, here, it's exhausting the day after battle. 
It's going to take a five days march uh, uh, on almost the run to get to Rome. And Hannibal's army is exhausted and tired after Cannae. He has to recoup. I think he saw that it was an impossible task even then. But history has asked the question, well, Hannibal, why didn't you try? Rome's military might lay at your feet, vanquished. Why didn't you try? It's a, it's an interesting question. It, it does um, get to that. We'll never know the answer. It, it does get to that conundrum, though, that you have, that, that Hannibal faced, which is that he can win these battles, but just, you know, deciding the war really ultimately beyond his power. And, and after Cannae, as you made clear, you know, the, the, the Fabian strategy becomes pretty much gospel. And there's no yep. way that they're going to send out another, you know, number, uh, you know, score of legions to get to get massacred. So Hannibal is, you want to describe, has all these, you know, he's he's maneuvering in, in South Italy for over a decade, and yet yeah. he cannot figure out how to end this war. And in the meantime, no. as you then go on to point out, the Romans uh, begin to uh, dismantle. Carthage's uh, empire by taking Spain away from them, and, and with Spain, the, that silver that they that uh, that the Hannibal's been using to such good effect. Yeah, the military intelligence dries up, and now his brother, who's forced to Spain with an army, Hannibal's hoping that the two armies between them can create a pincer movement against Rome, but Hasdrubal's leadership leaves something to be desired. Very problematic. Hasdrubal knows his brothers in South Italy. Hannibal knows his brother has come over the Alps uh, with an army, but they've got to somehow meet up. And these are two uh, arms separated uh, without a control center. And what Hasdrubal does rather stupidly is he has this envoy of Carthaginians wandering around South Italy looking for Hannibal and they get captured. And for whatever reason, either they had a written message or their ciphers were broken, their message was to Hannibal in in Carthaginian, which of course the Romans had people who could read it, whether they were captured Carthaginians or whatever, and it told Hannibal exactly where Hasdrubal was going to go and wait. And that was up above uh, what well, was below Rimini, uh, above uh, the eastern Adriatic. And Hasdrubal got trapped at Metaurus. And uh, Cornelius Nepos, a very wise uh, military general, he thought that if he could pretend that he had Hannibal hemmed in in South Italy, but in the meantime, made this rapid, rapid march north to join the other forces uh, to hold Hasdrubal in check, that Hannibal wouldn't know about it. Hannibal has no military intelligence. He's cut off from informants. Maybe he never even knows what happened to his brother's envoy. Maybe he suspects they got captured, but he doesn't know where to go to meet his brother. And the Romans, in the meantime, they can they can they can ride north as fast as they can. They're not running through hostile territory. They're they're going through friendly territory, and uh, uh, the Celts now, who are with Hasdrubal, basically uh, kind of drop out of the battle. They were a major mercenary force to help Hasdrubal, and they're worthless. 
And now that whole Roman army of Hasdrubal is kind of lost in the oxbows of the Mataras River with its deep ravines. Bad news for Hasdrubal. And the Romans hem him in in a canyon. And as I said, they cut off his head. And when it's flung to the feet of Hannibal by an emissary, you know, some person, some sentry carrying a white flag and said, this is a message for you, to drop the head of his brother at his feet. As I mentioned earlier, I think Hannibal knew then in 207, when he looked at his brother's head, that decapitated head and said, there lies the fate of Carthage. I think he knew. He's boxed in. He can't get good mercenaries. The South Italians are very fickle. Uh, they're, they're either uh, Locrians or people, uh, uh, they're people of South Italy who are either, mostly of either Greek heritage or, or, or whatever they are. They're not going to be uh, easily coming over to his side. And for the next basic uh, four years, Hannibal is completely frustrated. And in the meantime, what has Scipio done? Well, Scipio has taken, even before Hasdrubal's death at Mataris, Scipio has taken away from him Hannibal's one constant that he had all along, that supply line and that silver. So that really changes the war. And then Scipio, uh, who has to really persuade Rome, uh, and it's not going to be easy because Fabius Maximus and others are kind of the enemies of Scipio, young Scipio. And Scipio finally is able to persuade Rome, look, we have the invader with us here in Italy. Let's take the war to them. Let's take the war to Carthage. Then from Sicily, he does that. He, you know, he's, he's administering Sicily. And uh, Robert O'Connell's great book, The Ghosts of Cannae, the survivors of Rome from Cannae, Scipio retrains to regain their honor at Zama. So, I mean, it's a, it's a total reversal now because Scipio has every advantage that he learned from Hannibal at Zama. Hannibal now is forced to come back from South Italy to Carthage. He kind of goes the back way lands at his own territory near Sous, um, Hadrametum, uh, which is southeast of Carthage, kind of on the, the Gulf of, of Sirtis, of Sidron. You know, it's, now Scipio has, for the several years, has turned the Numidians over mostly to his side, and now Scipio has the enormous war advantage with cavalry, and Scipio teaches his army. Hannibal has 80 new war elephants at Zama, but they're not trained. And Scipio figures out a way to neutralize the elephants. He arranges his phalanxes in tight maniples. And the night before battle, we're told that he, he and Hannibal meet up. And uh, the, the, the anecdotes, you know, when you have these long speeches in ancient history, it's a little little dubious to be able to reconstruct them word for word to know if that's what they actually said. But the, but the gent of it was that Scipio says, Hannibal, you know, you, you had the opportunity to sue for peace, and, but you've chosen instead war. And Hannibal instead suggests peace and a truce, and Scipio says, too late, too late. 
And Hannibal knows he's at a tremendous disadvantage in that battle. 80 new untrained war elephants, thousands of raw recruits. Scipio has the huge advantage in Numidian cavalry. Uh, and when the elephants charge, uh, so one of the one of the suggestions I make in the book is that um, the the unison of voices in a Roman army uh, against the kind of cacophony of voices in the Carthaginian army that Scipio chose to confuse the war elephants. And when they charged, he had his maniples so mobile, they could just move to the side and let the, the elephants run right through all the way to the other end without doing any, any damage whatsoever. And the rest of the Carthaginian elephants on Hannibal's army, they were so confused in battle and untrained, they turned and gored Carthaginians instead. Now, Hannibal might have been able to win on certain circumstances. He put his veterans in the back and forced the recruits in the front. Uh, but um, then Scipio essentially won uh, with the outflanking cavalry maneuvers and uh, taking every page out of Hannibal's book. Hannibal escaped back to Carthage, and Carthage is now defeated for the first time in Hannibal's lifetime. Uh, uh, Carthage uh, is in tatters. And of course, they're going to blame Hannibal because it was his war. Scipio and the Romans put a huge indemnity on Carthage. And oddly enough, as I mentioned, I think partly because he's sympathetic and admires uh, Hannibal, Scipio knows the best possible person to govern Carthage in the aftermath to make sure that it's organized and the money is paid, put Hannibal in charge. And that's exactly what happened for a few years until the pro-Roman forces and the anti-Hannibal forces in Carthage. Uh, rumor is out that Hannibal is going to be captured and taken to Rome, whether in chains or not. You know, that's what the Romans wanted in their triumph anyway. And, and Scipio is going to get his triumph, whatever. But Scipio seems maybe, we don't know, but... But now in Carthage, Hannibal gets word that he's going to get captured and taken to Rome. So he escapes that day and uh, leaves with a ship and uh, uh, goes various places uh, in the next year you know, to, to Crete and uh, eventually uh, back to Tyre, the mother city of Phoenicia. And then he becomes a mercenary, constantly agitating against Rome. Uh, I mean, I could I could go on, but well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, could you tell us? I'm thrilled, Mark. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> it's our pleasure. It's, it's, it's been fascinating to, to hear about the life of Hannibal. Uh, so, uh, what are you working on now? Well, uh, I've got several things uh, that are on my plate. I have to leave. Uh, I'm teaching, a, of course, uh, I'm teaching. You know, my my a couple of classes at Stanford over the summer, and then I'm off for National Geographic to lead an expedition in the Alps. 
uh, in September, or late late August and through September, and uh, then I'm leading an, an Archaeological Institute of America tour as well uh, to uh, archaeological sites and Roman sites in the Italian Lake District, but including I'm taking these people in early September to the Battle of Trebia. Ah. So I'm so excited, Mark, to show them exactly how Hannibal used a freezing river in the impetuosity of Sempronius to uh, destroy uh, a Roman army. So I'm I'm excited, and um, I'm really I'm 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 thrilled and grateful that you would give me an opportunity to talk about Hannibal. You know, I'm not so sure always in that my book is completely a biography, as it is also kind of a military history account, but I will remain fascinated with Hannibal all my life. And and after your book, I can understand why. (laughs) How how can one not be so uh, intrigued by this enigma of Hannibal? Well, uh, Patrick Hunt, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, and it's an honor, Mark.